This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack DeRora. We're business and trial lawyers with the Beehaw Law Group in Columbus. And today we're going to talk about the inner workings of the Ohio Supreme Court with Justice Michael Donnelly. Yeah, we're lucky to have Justice Donnelly with us. He's served on the court since January of last year. Welcome, Justice Donnelly. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, Justice Donnelly, before we get started, um, I spend most of my time, and I know Jack does, in the Common Pleas Court, uh, mostly in Franklin County. I uh, do some appellate work, and then rarely I'm in front of the Supreme Court. Maybe you can tell our listeners how those courts interact with each other. Sure, I'd be happy to. In fact, I spent most of my time for the last 14 years before I ran uh, for Ohio Supreme Court in the Common Pleas Court in Cuyahoga County, and it was one of the greatest privileges of my life. And for those of your listeners who are unfamiliar on how the courts interact, the trial courts uh, exist to uh, resolve disputes in our that will inevitably arise in our democracy, both criminal, when the government brings criminal charges uh, against the accused, and both and civil cases where you practice. And the uh, disputes of fact will be resolved in those trial courts, both the common pleas that handles felonies. Um, civil cases of over a certain uh, jurisdictional amount, and then you have your municipal court that handles misdemeanor criminal cases and lower uh, jurisdictional amounts uh, in dispute in civil cases. So that's where the, uh, you're going to resolve factual disputes initially. Uh, if you receive an adverse ruling in one of the trial courts, you can ap- automatically appeal to one of our uh, 12 districts, courts of appeal that c- covers all the state of Ohio, and um, make uh, an argument that you uh, the the ruling should be reversed, uh, or the success- successful party will argue that it should be affirmed. And generally speaking, uh, disputes are going to find that the appellate courts are the court of last resort. If you lose there, the case is generally over with, unless you're able to convince where I'm at now, seven, four of the seven justices, that uh, the matter should be reviewed because it's either a constitutional issue or that it's a matter of great public importance. So unlike the appellate courts down below us, we decide what to bring in. And we, um, relatively speaking, we bring in very few of uh, cases per year. Can you give us an idea how many cases uh, will be um, uh, appealed to the Supreme Court and how many cases you would take or a percentage of that? Thousands. And, and just to give you an example, um, tomorrow I'll meet with my clerks and we will review uh, the motions to get in. They're, we call them jurisdictionals. And I'll either give the thumbs up or the thumbs down if I believe it's a matter of great public importance. I have no discussion with my colleagues before I vote. And um, there might be 85 of those that need to be voted on by this Friday at noon. Uh, And then um, once the initial votes are calculated, you'll see which cases were accepted for review. And in my experience so far, maybe out of all those 85, maybe one. Sometimes it's none, but one or two, two would be a lot. But then what's interesting is if, as you look at the votes, you might see something that you voted for and two other justices voted for. So you know there's a shot, and you, you'll tell the court reporter, hold that for the next conference because I want to make a pitch to one of my colleagues that I think this is a matter we should be taking in. And sometimes it works, and I can convince them to change their vote on that. Uh, so it's a very uh, interesting process. 
once lawyers find out that their case has been taken, then there's a, a process to file briefs and, and, and let the justices know what the issues are. Uh, when a decision comes out, though, usually it's just one justice that writes it. Is that correct? Yes. How's that process? Who, who decides who gets to write the decision? That I think your listeners will find fascinating because I certainly did not know this until I was <laughs> privileged to uh, win the election. And I, I was told that uh, you – the way we assigned um, uh, opinions occurs after you know uh, in conference who's in the majority. You're either going to have four, three, five, two, six, one, uh, or seven, zero, very rarely. Uh, but if you're in the majority, uh, each of us has a marble. I have a number four, and uh, it goes into a leather bottle. Justice Kennedy. Uh, shakes the bottle with the marbles in the majority, rolls it out to Justice Fisher, and if your marble comes out, you're writing the opinion. And when I learned this, I said, well, what if it's a matter that I feel very strongly about? Can't I just volunteer? And they said, no. We, so um, it's yeah. a we, we write our name down, and then the way we regulate it so you don't get too many opinions at a time, uh, once you're assigned a case, we have a line. We write it down. You won't get another case until all the rest of the justices have a majority opinion, and that's how we regulate it. There, I know Jack's got some questions for you. Let me ask you another one about the decisions. It seems uh, for trial lawyers, especially from the courts of appeals, it takes a long time to get a decision out of our court of appeals, and those are three-judge panels. Right. Is there any uh, timelines that are either self-imposed upon the justices or that you have a rule of thumb that you like to meet, or is it just whenever you can get the right number of people to sign off? Uh, it really depends on the case and how fragmented it is. If uh, if if it's a four three uh, decision and the majority uh, writes their their opinion, and then you know one of the one of the dissenters is going to write a dissent, they're, they they at the next conference once the the majority initial draft opinion is circulated, you can place a hold on that case so that you can get started on your dissent, and then. Once you write your dissent, that takes place – that takes precedent among our reporters who edit the opinions and – so that we don't hold up majority opinions. Um, and then it uh, – that circulated and then the majority might re edit their opinion to address yours. So there's a lot of back and forth. That's why it takes a long time. And keep in mind, these are matters that we think are – are going to affect a lot of people. They're very serious cases with profound effects. And so what I relish about this new role being an appellate judge is the time I have to to think about it and maybe even change my initial position. I've I've taken a vote and uh, I've read a dissent and it's changed my mind. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating process, but I think that because these are such serious issues, we need that time to contemplate um, – both the decision, make, make sure it's right according to the law and how it's going to play out in terms of collateral effects that it might have. What's your staff look like and how much help do you have researching or writing opinions? Yeah, that's a great question. When I uh, was elected, I, I'm, I made it clear that I wanted experienced staff members. And I'm very fortunate to have um, uh, three excellent clerks, uh, Bob Burpee, Rebecca Rabb, Cheryl Hannon, and they are all have well over ten years. Some Bob, I think, has twenty-two years with other justices, so they've been 
great. Christine Heimoth is my executive assistant. And so once I'm assigned an opinion or once I've decided that I'm going to write a dissent, we divvy up those opinions with the clerks. And uh, I can't speak more highly uh, about the, the, the work that they do. We work together and edit the opinions. And some it'll depend, you know, uh, about the case, about how much of my own writing will go into it. It's always a working together, editing um, editing certain paragraphs if I, uh, I want. But they know initially after we have the discussion where I want to go on the decision and what points I want to highlight in the opinion. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Um, I, I get the impression that when you're a Supreme Court justice, you lead more, for lack of a better phrase, of a secluded life than as a trial judge. Yes. I mean, in simple parlance, it would seem to be more fun in a way to be a trial judge. It's so funny you say that. It, you know, that – that point really hit me right after uh, the New Year's holiday after I was sworn in and I packed up all my stuff from the trial court. And for 14 years, I had to be down at the courthouse at 830 every day. Uh, the lawyers were waiting there. I might have four or five trials set. There was a lot of interaction. And I'm a people person, so I like I like interacting with the people. And it, it it's stressful. It's very stressful at the trial court. Um, and uh, – you know, it, I, I compare it sometimes to an emergency room type of uh, uh, atmosphere. And when I won on the Supreme Court, before I had to be down at uh, in Columbus for my first round of arguments on January 8th. So I just had to start reading briefs. So I woke up. I drove my son to school that day, came home, stared at my two golden doodles, made a cup of coffee. And I thought to myself, what have I done? You know, because <laughs> it, it's very – now having all this t- time to just read and not interacting with people um, is is difficult to adjust to. But um, my colleagues have been very welcoming, very collegial uh, justices that I'm working with right now, and the cases are absolutely fascinating. So I'm not regretting the decision a bit. I, I want to go back to the deliberation process. So after you hear oral argument, mm-hmm. now we've got to come up with a decision. What does that look like? I have no idea. So yeah. after the oral argument, what's the next step? So the chief, right after oral argument, will say, uh, let's take a brief lunch break and let's meet at this this time in our conference room. We, we meet on the ninth floor uh, of the Ohio Supreme Court, and we have a beautiful conference room, a big conference table, and it's just us in there and the court reporter who takes the votes uh, and how it works is a fascinating process. Uh, the chief will take the first case and say, look, um, she might say, I'm going to vote to affirm. And this is why. And why she's speaking, no one can interrupt. Even if you think she's saying something incorrect, or the chief would never do that, by the way. But, uh, um, you know, she would say, you know, I'm going to affirm or I'm going to reverse. She also has the prerogative to um, to say um, – you know, I, I want to hear what the rest of you have to say. Again, no one can interrupt. Then it goes down the table in line of seniority. Justice Kennedy, French, Fisher, DeWine, myself. I have one day seniority over uh, Melody Stewart. So she gets to <laughs> – Justice Stewart gets to hear everybody's uh, um, side of the story. And then uh, when she's done, because the same rules apply, no one can interrupt, then there's kind of a free-for-all time to, to go back and forth and, and – argue 
and deliberate and say why you think someone's position is incorrect and this is why. And that can last, depending on the case, that can last for 10 minutes. That could last for 20 minutes. And when the chief assesses that, that where is everybody at, she says, okay, I'm calling for a vote. Then it goes from Justice Stewart, the least in your senior person, all the way up back up to the chief. And then you know who's in the majority, 4-3-5-2-6-1-7-0, and, uh, and the case is assigned. Um, and we handle every case that was argued that day. And uh, we leave court knowing what our assignments are uh, right there. So it's a it's an amazing process. It's really um, intellectually fascinating how your allegiances with other justices are going to change from case to case, just depending on how you look at the law. And it really has nothing to do at all with this percep- public perception that Democrats and Republicans. It's uh, it, you can see that. Um, I was very I was very complimented when uh, one uh, person who watches a court decision uh, described this current makeup of the court as one of the most independent in the state's history because they, they see us dis- making decisions. Uh, a lot of people said, oh, there's now two Democrats on the court. There's going to be a lot of 5-2 decisions. It's just not the case. Um, sometimes I'm on the same side as Justice Stewart. Sometimes I'm not. Um, um, and – you know, it, that goes with all the other justices. And we're very collegial. We all go out to dinner on Tuesday nights somewhere in Columbus after we're done arguing and, uh, vi- you know, vigorously dis- disputing each other's positions. And we go out and we have a good time. We talk about our kids and TV and all sorts of stuff, you know, movies. I got a question then for the lawyers that uh, practice before you. How important is it to you or the justices that, the, uh, that there is an oral argument and that the uh, – the lawyers make uh, the the points that they feel are important. Is that something that you'd rather just be waived, or do you like to listen no, to the lawyers? I, I, not only I love oral argument. I love uh, listening to uh, lawyers argue their cases, and I, and I did that as a trial court judge. Whenever there was a motion for summary judgment, I always, if one party wanted it, asked for oral argument, and that's why uh, because I think it results in better rulings. You're able. I have gone in to oral arguments on cases where I'm leaning one way to affirm or reverse, and I have walked away from that oral argument and changed my mind based on the way an attorney was able to distinguish uh, cases from the other side uh, in their position. And you know, most of most of the time, you have a, you're leaning some way towards, and and sometimes you're asking questions just to bolster that position, but. From time to time, I think oral argument can be very effective in um, uh, I think it's what lawyers do best, you know, that that form of oral advocacy. And I've seen some great arguments this year. For those of in our audience who have never been in the Ohio Supreme Court, it's a jewel of a facility. Oh, it's it's just gorgeous. Yeah. So it would be a good experience for anybody to listen and to look. It's just wonderful. It's, it's what a courtroom should be oh, yeah. like. I, I totally agree. It's one of the most uh, beautiful buildings I've I've ever seen, and uh, you know, so much history out there. All the portraits. I'm the 160th uh, justice in the state of Ohio, so every justice that has served on the court has their portrait hanging down. Then you walk walk down the the ninth floor, and you get to see all that um, history. And the courtroom itself just commands 
respect as a, a courthouse should. You know, the, uh, I think when our citizens walk in, uh, they they want to know how serious uh, uh, we're taking um, the uh, the decision making process and uh, the rule of law. But it's a serious place. Yeah, <laughs> when definitely. you walk in there, you get that idea oh, right yeah. now. Hey, let's talk about something that was in the dispatch uh, a couple weeks ago, and that is this idea about whether we should have party affiliations on the general ballot. Any yeah. thoughts about that? Yes, I I vehemently disagree okay. uh, because I do. I I think and. If I could have it my way, um, if you're going to have an elected judiciary like we have here in the state of Ohio, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, um, it makes more sense to have a completely nonpartisan. The way we elect judges in the state with having a partisan primary and a nonpartisan general just really doesn't make sense. And I think we're the only state in the union that has that particular dynamic. And it makes – it's – it doesn't really provide the voter with um, with solid information that you should be taking into account when you're voting for uh, um, judge. I served as a trustee in the Ohio Common Pleas Just um, uh, Judges Association for many years, and I'd get together at summer conferences and winter conferences with colleagues throughout the entire state, both Republican and Democrat. And when we get together and we talk about ideas for improving the system, we don't talk about partisan politics. We talk about how do we make our system more fair, more transparent, more efficient. And we don't discuss. We, we might be on polar opposites. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really, it, it's, it's come down to this. It's, it, you know, every county has a dominant party, Democrat or Republican. In Cuyahoga County, the Democratic Party has traditionally been the strongest. So no matter what your political leanings are, if you want to be a judge in Cuyahoga County, your chances go way up if you join the Democratic Party. Now you go 30 miles south to Medina, the dynamic changes. And if you want to, it doesn't matter what your politics are, you're going to most likely have a chance of winning. I think it's a miscue to the public about telling them what their, their, their party is. And I was very proud in my election. I went to every single um, group that has um, an interest in evaluating candidates. I had Democratic um, uh, operative telling me not to go in front of the Federal Society, not to go in front of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. I said, that's not going to happen um, with me because they deserve uh, to evaluate candidates because the justice system's there for everyone. They're there for Republicans, Democrats, independents. And what we do uh, in, a, in following the law, each of us takes the same oath to follow the Constitution and follow that law. And uh, it, what we do has not, nothing to do with partisan politics, and uh, that's the way it should be. If you're doing your job right as a judge, you should be able to earn the um, the the support of both the Republican Democratic Party, any group that has a legitimate group that has an interest in evaluating the justice. In Pennsylvania, once stayed over, the trial court can receive the trial court candidates can receive the endorsement of both parties, and that's the way it should be. Well, that your answer then springs the next question. If we're going to be electing judges, which we do, mm-hmm. then how do voters connect with judges even at the trial court level where they're – they could be in the same neighborhood. Right. right? Could be the person next door. 
but they are infinitely miles away as opposed to the state representative or the county treasurer. So how do voters connect with judges? Because as you know, the voter drop-off is significant as you get further down the ballot. Right. And that's been a complaint. I come from a highly uh, populated major metropolitan area, Cleveland, Ohio, and there's the newspapers have always complained about the name game. People are just voting. I have an Irish name. People vote for the Irish guy. Uh, and I, I get that. There's probably a percentage of people that do that. But when I hear arguments, we should go through a merit selection, I um, I haven't been convinced. Now, naturally, I was successful as an elected uh, candidate, so I might be a little bit biased. But I'm not convinced that a, a quote-unquote merit selection system is any better at selecting. I think both systems produce their fair of excellent judges, maybe not so excellent judges. And and you can't legislate politics out of either process. Um, so if we're going to have an elected system, and it doesn't look like it's going to change in the state of Ohio anytime soon because it's a very, um, it's a very easy uh, issue to campaign against. They're trying to take away your right to select your judges. Then – the only alternative to me is to provide the most information um, and the most transparency to the voting public about who we are, what our reputations is. We have uh, an organization, Judge for Yourself, made up of all lawyers from all different areas of practice in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm. And if you're a candidate, you go before them and you tell them what your experience is. Uh, they get to know through interaction of people who have appeared before you. Are you treating litigants fairly? Are you treating? Are you running your docket? efficiently um are you are you known as a fair-minded person that that listens to both sides and and then they put out ratings on you on, on you i'm interested in that in that organization is separate and apart from the bar association uh it's 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 connected it's under the auspices of, of the, the cleveland metropolitan uh, bar association and it has um a group of dedicated lawyers who have um Agreed to extricate themselves from the political process. They they take a take a an oath not to support any judges uh, monetarily in their campaigns or uh, attend any political events involving judges, at while they're sitting in this evaluation process. And um, you know they they um, they basically uh, you know grill you as as a candidate and come up with either excellent, adequate, or not recommended. And it's something that, you know, every candidate want, should go through. And there's other uh, group. The Plain Dealer obviously evaluates candidates. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of, there's a lot of information. Uh, the Chief Justice created a database called Judicial Votes Count. It's a similar organization where you can put a lot of information and your listeners can go to research who they're voting for. Your philosophy is is that the more information a voter gets, then the, the, the better they can cast that vote. Absolutely. Talk a little bit then how your campaigning had to change from doing a county-wide race to a statewide race. Yes. I thought Cuyahoga County was big, and then I uh, I made this decision and then I to drive around our, our great state and, uh, and visit. I didn't get to all 88 counties, but I, I got to – a lot of a lot of county to visit a lot of counties, and then I will always look back on that experience as one of the best experiences of my life because um, I realize how diverse the state is—rural areas, major metropolitan areas—and um, 
but I met some great people, uh, Republicans, Democrats, independents, and they were all interested in um, what I like to talk about with how do we make our system better. I am a judge who embraces the notion of criminal justice reform and civil justice reform, and make, and both of you are in the realm of civil litigation. So when I would go to law firms, civil law firms, I told them, I want to get in this position on the Supreme Court so I can have some influence in making litigation better for you. Um, into, I, my vision is to someday have a uniform case management order throughout the state of Ohio and provide you civil attorneys with what everybody agrees. You go to If you go to the uh, National Center for State Courts in Williamsburg, Virginia, who who has done many surveys and they, they uh, come up with uh, what they believe uh, is the jurisdictions where the, the highest degree of confidence in the courts uh, where the lawyers practice among both the lawyers and their clients. It's those jurisdictions that provide those um, attorneys with the highest degree of trial date certainty possible. The knowledge that if you're not able to resolve your dispute with your adversary, that you have a trial date that you can rely on and you can put it before the jury. Uh, also, ruling date cer- certainty. Uh, the big complaint among um, certain members of the bar about rulings languishing. Sometimes be- motions for summary judgment being ruled on the day before a trial date after countless thousands and thousands of dollars has been expended in trial preparation costs that did not need to be spent. I want to change that. I want a uniform case management order where you have a ruling date set far enough in advance of the trial date that you can rely on. It's either going to be ruled, uh, ruled, um, granted or denied, and you know what you have to do. And uh, I'm, I'm smiling because these are the kind of things that John and I talk a lot <laughs> about in the office. You know, it, there's that lack of predictability. One of the things that um, we we uh, laugh about a little bit in Franklin County, we get very detailed decisions from our judges mm-hmm. that obviously take a lot of time. But uh, the few cases I've had in Cuyahoga County, the decision comes on a postcard size and it's basically overruled. I find a question of fact. Right. And I think that is maybe somewhere in between those would, would be nice. But um, but it's, it is a problem uh, and I'm sure the problem is is that the, the common pleas judges are just overwhelmed with the civil motions and the, and the, the pleadings and those type of things. Well, you know, I, I think – I made a commitment when uh, when I was first elected a trial court judge, and I told the civil litigators this. I never wanted um, two civil litigators to appear at my courtroom after they've worked all week and all weekend ready to, for trial and been told, sorry, uh, we're going forward on a criminal case. I never did that. And what we would do is if there was a potential conflict between another case, either criminal or civil, we would get a hold through my staff attorney, who is now a judge, Emily Hagen in, in Cleveland, and um, she would call, call the parties and say, look, there's a potential conflict. We can do one of three things. We can back you up to this case if it goes forward. If it doesn't work because of your schedule and you have witnesses coming in, we'll, move, we'll give you another date and you don't have to um, show up here. Or we'll, sometimes we get a visiting judge, and if the trial date – 
meant more to the parties than being before me. I didn't take offense to that, and we would just spend the case across the street. And, it, it, and that's trial date certainty. That's what gets done. That's what that's the fuel, uh, as you both know, uh, that that moves the system because it allows lawyers working under those deadlines to evaluate the case and let lawyers do what lawyers do best. They evaluate the merits of the case or the lack of merits. They come to a cost-benefit analysis of the dispute, and they decide we're either going to resolve this case through a settlement or we're going to go forward. And that's what courts are we, – we need to be training our new judges that that's – you know, I, I was never uh, an arm twister. Um, you know, you, I'm sure you've been before judges who take a lot of time to – you should settle. And I, I was always – made myself available if one side or the other wanted a settlement conference between me. But I never ordered mediation or anything. I just said, I have to be here at the courthouse whether you try it or whether you don't. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. And uh, that, that's what we need to train all new judges coming in. They have to – you're a trial court judge, and you're there to try cases. And uh, if, if you don't, you know, run for the appellate court. <laughs> but uh, – but, but, you know, that that's what resolves cases. I, I did the same thing with discovery disputes. Um, you know, if you run into a problem with your adversary, you want some information that you believe is relevant to your claim, they don't want to give it up. I told people, do not file motions for um, protective orders or motions uh, to, uh, to compel. That just wastes money and adds to delay. And uh, so I would say before you do that, call me, and I will be either on the phone with you or I will have a hearing on the record, and we will resolve that dispute, um, and we keep the case moving without you ca- causing you know unnecessarily delay or having to bill your clients uh, for something that should usually took place. Uh, I I would have to do about five or six a year, and I do it on a phone call. It usually involves relevance about something. Yeah. I'd listen to both sides, make a decision, yes, turn it over, or no, no, you can't have that, and just keep the ball moving towards that trial date. I think that yeah. would be the preference of most trial lawyers is to have an informal discovery conference, and what you say about the certainty of trial dates is certainly music to most trial lawyers' ears. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and it, it, you know, it's occasionally from time to time you're going to have a legal issue that you, they're asking for something that – is work product or they're claiming to be work product and you you don't think that's the case. And I'd say, okay, let's have a two-week briefing schedule, file the decision made, you know, um, and and keep it moving. But most of the time, it can be done very informally. I know you've got some significant issues you want to talk about regarding the criminal justice system, but I want to bring you back sure. to something regarding judicial elections because, to be candid, I'm on the opposite side of the issue with you on that. Uh, And this brings me to another story that was – or editorial that was in the dispatch a few weeks earlier about HB6 and justices having to recuse themselves because of donations. Mm -hmm. That concerns me and I see the problem continuing if not increasing – What's your response? And, and maybe I ought to explain what I'm talking about to the audience, which is HB6 has to do with utility companies. Two or three of our judge, justices had to recuse themselves because they were receiving campaign donations from some of the parties in that litigation, and that's now before the, the Ohio Supreme Court. Yeah, so 
Uh, I think the Toledo Blade just did a story, and they did, and it revealed that in my particular campaign, I I received zero, um, and I don't know why that was. They probably didn't think I was going to win the election, um, but I I didn't even think about I, about how much interaction we have and oversight. Those involve direct appeals from the Public Utilities Commission. Um, and that's something we don't just decide on those cases. But we have to he- hear those cases, and because they're always going to be a party, um, I'm going to make a commitment that I-, I will never take any kind of campaign contribution. Because um, you know, this isn't a case um, that we're voting on, and because there's such close interaction, I I'm just not going to do that because I I don't I don't want to. It, look, it's, I'm not saying that taking campaign contributions, um, that's the way we, we – when you run a statewide campaign, the reality is you have to raise money to get your message out. And I'm not saying anything about people who take – but, you know, if if you're taking in so much that you have to recuse yourself, you know, why, why, um, why take it in the first place? That's just what I've come to think since I've been there because I didn't think about it because uh, I really weren't – wasn't concentrating on energy type cases like we review. Um, so, you know, judges have, we're bound to um, maintain an appearance that does, that avoids um, the appearance of impropriety. So I'm making that commitment to myself and any future. I'm, I'm just not going to accept campaign contributions from people we de- deal with so closely. So back to criminal justice reform. I, th- I think that's a good place to go. <laughs> yeah. I was. Uh, we don't do uh, much in the criminal justice area, but um, we do have a few cases. And one of the things that's always struck me as um, as a issue with our uh, sentencing um, guidelines or or the discretion we give judges. I'll give you an example. We've got a client that received a sentence of thirty four years in prison and. His crime was selling bath salts. Mm-hmm. We've got another client in prison um, charged uh, and convicted of rape and uh, 32 years in prison. So a gentleman selling bath salts is going to be spending more time in prison than uh, a client that was uh, charged with rape. And then the third case I'm involved with in our in our firm is a, is a gentleman charged with multiple rapes over time. And received a sentence of 13 years. Yes. So it's just, you know, is there a problem there that you see and how can it be addressed if you know? Yes. The answer is yes. I, that is something that has bothered me for a long time, uh, the disparity uh, between um, se- sentences for the same crime. You go into one judge's room, someone's getting probation. You go into another judge, same facts, same background, and a decade in prison. And all those cases that you just outlined, um, they they emphasize the fact that our trial court judges in Ohio have extreme discretion in, in how, how they sentence. Now, discretion is something that I've always advocated for as a judge because it's how we do justice. We weigh aggravating facts, we weigh mitigating facts, and we we can tailor the sentence um, and but, but what the public needs to understand is judges' sentences should be – the cornerstone of our sentencing law is found in a section of the code 29, 2911 and 292912, which contains the overall pr- 
purposes of criminal sentencing. And so when you go out, I, when I, every sentence I conducted, what, whether it was a murder case, a rape case, or a drug trafficking case, I always had that law in front of me, laminated on my, my bench. Because what, what that direct sent, uh, judges to do is to fashion a sentence that adequately and it's commensurate with the actions of the of the defendant, uh, punishes the, the offender, sets them on a course of towards rehabilitation, uh, if if possible, protects the community uh, against future uh, like sentences, and um, what, what a lot of people don't know, they're supposed to use the least amount of our limited resources necessary to accomplish those goals. So recently, I uh, and people can Google this. I went. Before, uh, or I wrote an op-ed with Judge Ray Hedden from the Eighth District Court of Appeals, uh, where we advocated to support the Criminal Sentencing Commission's uh, advocacy for a computer, a centralized computer database, um, which we believe would um, reduce mass incarceration. We have fifty thousand people in the state of Ohio. I think we're fifteenth in the nation of how many people we have incarcerated. And uh, that the city of Lakewood up in in Cleveland is a, is the highest populated city in the state of Ohio. So that's the equivalent of every man, woman, and child in that city is locked up. And I can tell you, being a, a, a judge for 14 years, you know, um, there are very few people that come through the criminal justice system that you need to lock up for that long for the, the, the for, for public safety purposes. Um, to keep to remove society. Don't get me wrong; they exist. There are people that you that need to be incarcerated because if they don't, they're going to murder someone, they're going to rape someone, and society needs to be protected. But the vast majority of people on every criminal uh, on docket are made up of people who um, who have instability, family instability in their lives. They have uh, often mental illness. They all. They have um, addiction issues, and we can um, attack these issues and provide these people with the stability they need in the, at a much, much more cost-efficient manners than in incarcerating them. And how I believe a database is going to be helpful, I spoke before the Sentencing Commission in February, and it, I was fortunate. It, it, the speaking event took place right after the Paul Manafort sentence, which was – it, a national discussion. How, when the government was asking for 19 years in that particular case, how did he end up with um, a reduced sentence, 47 months? And I read into, I looked into it, and what the defense lawyer in in that particular case, they had information that our lawyers in the state of Ohio don't currently have. They had all Judge Elliott, I believe was his name, all his past sentencing, and they said, Judge, before you went. Before we go down that road, let me let me show you 17 cases where you sentenced another person for the exact same crime, and this is what you did here. This one you gave one year. This one you gave probation. And when you have when you're armed with that type of information, um, judges want to be fair, and every judge knows that it's a fundamental tenet of justice that you you want to treat people. Uh, alike, you know, unless there's good reason. If you're going to treat someone differently, you better be able to articulate some reason why you would treat someone differently. And that's the transparency that would keep cases down. And it would work for prosecutors. It would work for um, 
defense lawyers and it would work for judges and we could eliminate what you just described in your question, that inconsistency. You know, people you know, we we just reviewed a case at the the Supreme Court which involved a fifty five year old woman who pled to theft related cases. Not trying to minimize what she did. She a lot of people she was going into nursing homes, she was stealing item items, um she hurt hurt a lot of people in what she did. She was hoarding the items, which I was a mental health court judge in Cleveland. That suggests to me that there may have been a mental health issue. But she walked into her uh, plea hearing, and the state never indicated what they were going to um, advocate for 30 days later at the sentencing hearing. Uh, she thought she was getting a benefit because half her counts were dismissed. When she showed up at her sentencing hearing, she had no idea whether she was going to get probation that day or whether she was going to get the sentence she did. The state asked for 42 years, the defense lawyer asked for probation, and the trial court gave her 65 years. Now, that sentence alone is going to cost the taxpayer, if she lives that long, a um, hundred, hundred, you know, a million and a half dollars. About, 20, yeah. about 25 grand a year, if it, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I, think, that's, I yeah. think that's correct. So, you know, we can, we can accomplish the goals of protecting the community, maintaining law and order, making sure that people that um, that break the law are, are punished. But it has to be proportional. We have to bring some common sense to this. And we have to – there's too many people in prison that don't have to be there for long sentences to accomplish those overall, overall goals. And uh, I think that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. We, we have to act together with the judiciary, the legislature – and um, and the executive branch, and we can we can make a better, more cost efficient just, justice system. Um, if we and I think the first step would be funding this database and getting the information we need. I would think that if I were a judge about to award a sentence, I'd want to see what my contemporaries had done in the past. I, yeah, I, that's a nice place to start, at least in the analysis. And so judges don't really have that to even fall back on and take a look. No, and it. When you think about it, it's the most important thing we do as a judge. We take away someone's freedom, what we value the most in this democracy. And when I – the training I received on sentencing um, took place about a week before I started doing the job. And uh, we took about two hours and we went through various scenarios and said, what do you think? What what would you give here? And uh, I think probation. What about you? Five years. And and then we never – Never went back to that. You just get into the position and you start doing it. And you 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 want you want to be just like you said. You want to be consistent. What is what's appropriate for this? What what's going to accomplish those goals? And I would try to articulate. Getting back to you getting decisions from courts that don't articulate the the reasoning. Mm-hmm. I would try to do that not only in civil cases but in criminal cases too. I would. I did everything on the record in Cuyahoga County. Um, and it's a practice that I talked about on the campaign role, uh, or on the on the campaign trail. I would go out, and I told people um, when I started uh, listening to plea agreements that people were being negotiated, uh, prosecutors and defense lawyers were negotiating. I would do in it when I first got elected in the manner in which I was taught. I would go we. I'd meet with a defense lawyer. We'd negotiate a proposed plea. But then you have to go back and see the judge to see if the judge will accept it. And I usually do this back in chambers, off the record. 
And after a while, I started to question this process, and I thought, you know, why do I have these discussions back here? Because there's really there's two stakeholders that are missing: the accused, whose life's going to affect, be affected, and if there's a victim in the case, mm-hmm. they they should be able to hear what's being take place. And no one, including myself, should ever say anything in that back room that you wouldn't say verbatim on the record. So one day. Uh, had a great bailiff, John, who's working for my uh, former staff attorney, uh, Emily, and uh, up in Cleveland. And I, I said, let all the lawyers know. We can still have these discussions, but we're going to do them from now on in open court, on the record. And that way – and it was, a, it was probably the biggest epiphany of my legal career because I never turned back for a decade. I just – everything was discussed on the record, and I was held accountable – and everybody else was. Okay, so two questions. Sure. Any pushback by the lawyers, and did your contemporaries think you were crazy? Yes. At first, they thought I wouldn't talk to them at all, and I, and I had to clear up that um, – that, uh, that but once they started doing it, I think they enjoyed it because um, it, would, it would take place like this. They, they would say, here's the plea. Um, and we're reducing this uh, felony two, and we looked into the facts, and it's not as serious as we originally thought. We're going to plea it to this, which more is a fa- has a factual basis, and it's a low level felony, or it might be a misdemeanor. And uh, the defense lawyer would say something, but judge, we, we'd like to discuss, like they used to do back in the chambers. We, where are you inclined to sentence in this case? Well. Um, I would say, well, let me turn to the prosecutor. What, what are you advocating for? And sometimes they'd say, we have no objection to probation. Or they'd say, we leave it up to you. We're not taking a position. And I'd turn to the defense lawyer and say, what are you advocating for? Uh, they'd say, we're advocating for probation. Well, does the law and the facts in this case support that position? Yes. Tell me about it. And they would lay it out. This is a felony four. There's a presumption in favor of community control. And... Uh, you know, he's very sorry for what he does. He has a job. He has a sta- stability. He wants to pay back for the items that he stole. It'll never happen again. And I would listen and I would say, okay, let's get a pre-sentence investigation. If all the facts as you represented here is correct, that's what I'm going to do. And then I was held accountable. I was held accountable. So 30 days later, if I'm having a bad day and forget about what I said, there's a record that the lawyers can say, judge, remember what you said right here? And that's transparency. That. And when you're on the record, as you both of you lawyers know, when, when people are on the record, you don't want to embellish. You don't want to lie because you can get in trouble for that. And you fo- you tend to focus on the merits or the lack of merits. People don't want to appear threatening or coercive. And that's the beauty of, of, of transparency. I, and I never, I never look back. I, and I tell j- new judges all that take the bench, look, this is what – this was my experience. And – um, I really think it's the way to go. I, I don't, you know, rather than discussing things in in the back room and saying things that maybe shouldn't be said by one of the parties. What about your contemporaries? They know about it. You know, we had a um, we had a podcast serial. Uh, they they did a year study, um, uh, and so they went around to all the courtrooms and pointed out certain. Um, issues in the criminal justice system, um, you know, the, the the power of the prosecutor and a, a lot of the laws that exist that are very coercive in terms of 
trying to get people to enter plea agreements that um, and they they did a, a an excellent job of exposing um, issues that need to be worked on and the only thing they mentioned to, about me during that time was the fact that I don't do backroom deals I don't talk about things in the back I talk about and when you're the neutral that's the way I think it should be done and I'm going to be coming out with a an article with the Ohio State Law Journal Criminal Law Journal this spring and I talk about exactly that the the different philosophies among judges about sentencing see and why it I believe it results in disparate treatment because in the criminal dealing with my criminal docket I always viewed myself as a neutral um and we going back to how much discretion we have and in the 14 years I, I was on the bench, if I had the opportunity to go above with my discretion in terms of sentencing, uh, a, a posi- above a position where the prosecutor was advocating for, I never did. I never did because I didn't think the law guided me. If if I had if I could sentence someone from two to eight years, and the the um, the defense lawyer says we're asking for the minimum, judge, and the prosecutor says we don't believe the minimum is appropriate. Um, we think that this case is more serious, and this is why. And the defendant's background, he needs more time for rehabilitation, and this is why. And we're asking for not the maximum, but we're asking for five. I never went above that. I might, I might, I, I might go with that argument. I might go in the mid range. I might go with the defense, depending on what the facts were. But there's other colleagues on on the bench that say that we'll do that. That they say, um, no, sentencing is my realm. And you can make a recommendation, and I, I understand that that people have different ways of looking at things that I do. But in, until we have a discussion about this, on um, we're always going to have that disparity um, mm-hmm. because, and I just don't. Uh, I think if you're negotiating a plea agreement, you should know within reason what benefit you are negotiating. They're negotiating for some degree of leniency, but often too. Too many times in our system, what's really happening is you're getting no benefit at all. You're getting the hope of a benefit. It's illusory sometimes. There, there. Um, I, you know, there's so many things we could talk about. I, I talk about a culture of um, plea and release that I used to see uh, taking place in Cuyahoga County. Like if someone was overcharged with a crime and they can't afford the the bail that's associated with that that charge and they've sat in jail let's say four weeks until the lawyers have exchanged the information and by the time they do that they they realize wait this isn't as serious as the charge okay we're here's a we're we're changing this from a f2 to a felony five or a misdemeanor and so what what happens then the defense lawyer goes in and says to the defendant who's been sitting there for four weeks and says uh Great news! I got you a misdemeanor plea, and I always was concerned. But what if he's not guilty of the misdemeanor plea? What if he? What if he said, "I have a defense to that. I want to go to trial, and I want to exercise my trial rights." And the lawyer's re- response would have to be, "Well, we can do that, but you're going to have to wait a couple more weeks before we get a, a trial date, and even then, it might not be certain." Or you could take the plea today, and you get out today. That that type of coerciveness should not exist in our criminal justice system. The only coercive force that should be uh, in, be um, uh, placed upon a defendant thinking about whether they should enter a plea is the knowledge that uh, if they don't, 
they got a firm trial date that they can rely on, and the state is going to be held to its burden of proving the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. But we have this, this system right now, uh, plea and release. And, and funny you would talk about temporary incarceration pending trial, but that that goes to the system of the – or that goes to the subject of the bond system, which has also been in the newspaper oh, yeah. a lot lately. <laughs> yeah, and that, for good reason because – I think what's taking place in our system is bail is being set according to the charge and not by going into an underlying um, uh, close examination of what's being alleged, what the defendant's background. Bail's supposed to be um, to ensure that the person who's pleading not guilty is going to participate and they're going to show up at and show up for their pretrials, show up. Uh, uh, for trial, participate in the dispute. And of, of course, you have to consider public safety, you know, based on, on the charge. And, you know, some people, uh, based on the seriousness of the charge and the strength of the evidence, to be honest, should have no bail. They should, we should have a hearing and, af- and, and bring that out and have no bail. But when bonds are being set just according to the charge, that's where you have problems. And I always point to this one time uh, in a robbery case, um, what, what I used to do in my courtroom was if someone wanted a, uh, their bail, their bond reviewed, uh, I, within 48 hours, I would have a hearing on the on the record out in, in the court. And I'd have the prosecutor there, I'd have the defense lawyer, and I'd say, what's the charge here? And they would say, it's uh, $30,000, and they can't make that. that might, might as well be $3 million for the person who's sitting there in uh in jail clothes, and uh, I'd say to the prosecutor, "What's what are the underlying facts? And I remember one time I had a robbery case, and when he outlined it, it he said, uh, well, this uh, defendant and his girlfriend were going to Edgewater Park to see a concert together, and they got in an argument uh, on the way there, and uh, when, when they got out of the car, he forcefully grabbed her arm, ripped the keys out of the, uh, her hand, and she and ran into the crowd, preventing her uh, from taking the car. And I said, um, okay, and anything else other than that? And he said, uh, no. Wow. I said, what's the, this defendant's record? Well, he has a marijuana charge. Any violence in his past? No. Does he have a job? Yes, he has a job. He's he got to be there tomorrow. He already missed two days of work. Uh, he, he, he's in danger of losing it. Um, okay. Um, I'd say to the defendant, uh, you I'm going to change that $30,000 bond to $5,000 personal bond. Your order released. Are you going to show up at your pretrial? Yes. Do you agree to not have any contact with your girlfriend or probably soon-to-be ex-girlfriend? Uh, yes, I do. And I let him out. And then we set a trial date, and then that par- that case was pled from an F2 robbery, two to eight years, to a misdemeanor disorderly conduct, which it was. That's what transparency does. Bond review hearings. Now there are some people out there that have that, that have they're they're not going to show up at their trial. They have a record of not showing up. You, perhaps they a bond needs to be set, but it should be set reasonably to ensure that they're going to show up. You know, not not these high bonds that keep people. And the studies out there show three days, three days of incarceration, your life starts to deteriorate. To oh, deteriorate. You know, uh, you lose your job. You lose your ability to pay rent. It creates a uh, cascade. A, a cascade that actually leads to more likely, more likely recidivism in the future but for that particular uh, 
individual. Well, it's wonderful uh, to have a justice that uh, understands these issues and thinks so, you know, uh, thoroughly about them and about passionately. The per- yeah, about the personal, uh, the personal element yes. of everything that goes on. Yeah. Well, we really yeah. appreciate your time. And, I thank uh, you for having me. It's been fascinating. Yeah. Well, thank you so it, much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really nice having you. And before we go, I want to plug my – forgive me. I want to plug my blog, considerthisbyjd.com, for those who want to receive by email a variety of social and political issues. So, Justice Donnelly, thank you, sir, for being with us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And uh, in a few weeks, Lawyer Up will be back and we'll be talking about the death penalty. And one of the things we'll be talking about is how the cost of killing killers is killing us. So long.